Welcome to this episode of the Bet and Goods podcast. I'm speaking to Rohit Krishnan, who's a director at Unbound, a venture capital firm. But more importantly, today he writes at Strange Loop Canon, uh, a, a, a newsletter that, that, that I would call a mishmash of applied economics and futuristic thinking. So hi, Rohit, uh, and thanks for coming on the show. My absolute pleasure. So I'd like to know more about you. Where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? And what got you into the current profession you, you are in now? <laughs> what was I like as a kid? Um, so I grew up all over India. So until I was 17, I studied in eight different schools pretty much all over because my dad had a transferable job. So Northeast, Southwest, we kind of moved around everywhere. Um, from the time I was 17, I moved to university in Singapore. So I was there for the next I want to say like eight years, something to that order. And then I moved to London, which is where I am now. And I've been living for the last decade. So that's kind of the, the, the short history. Uh, what was I like as a kid? I don't, I mean, my recollections are naturally hazy. And I'm not sure that I can take what my mom tells me with uh, much less than a you know large serving of salt. But I think I was pretty bookish. I would read pretty much anything I could get my hands on because I remember that being a key part of life. I went through our local library several times every time we moved pretty fast. Uh, Kindle, unfortunately, was not you know, available yet. Otherwise, that would have been uh, the way most of my dad's salary went. But uh, I was very bookish. Um, I used to play a reasonable amount of uh, sports, more for fun than for competition. Uh, I remember that. Uh, Folks tell me that I was pretty mischievous, but I don't really know if that is true or if that's just the sort of thing that people talk, say about kids, you know? Like when you look back, everything is covered with the rosy hue. So when you hear that, I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. Were you very really ambitious? I've had a difficult time with ambition as a concept. I mean, the short answer is um, yes, but... I'm not sure that does it justice. So maybe just take a step back, like um, ambition for our, you kind of learn ambition from looking at ambitious people and the ambitious people you would see around you to a large extent revolved around folks who were pretty successful in their professional life or pretty successful in their academic life. At least for me, those were the kind of two pillars. Mm. Um, academic life was highly attractive because these people seem to kind of like what they do for lack of a better word, um, they liked, They did the research that they liked, they did the publications that they liked, et cetera. Of course, when you're a kid, you don't really realize, you know, the rat race that goes on inside academia at all, right? I mean, you don't understand the fight for tenure or any of these kinds of things. Professional life was always, um, it seemed, I don't know, slightly, I don't want to say um, ridiculous, but faintly ridiculous because my overwhelming impression when I was a kid was that these people are taking these things far too seriously most of the time. And I don't know whether it was the puffed up self-importance that got to me or whether it was the fact that um, none of, nobody actually seemed all that interested in their jobs. Like, for example, my, my uncle, who's a, a fairly successful or actually very successful um, senior banker, like he told me at one point in my late teens that your job and your passion should be separate. 
like you do not want to intertwine them at all, which struck me as, um, I don't know, a profoundly pessimistic thing for somebody to say, even at that time. So um, I don't know if that answers the question, but like to me, ambition was always like, I mean, it should be ambition to drive you towards something. And I think I had a profound question of like, why would people not do more things that they actually liked <laughs> uh, as opposed to do things that uh, they will, that will make them, you know, quote unquote, as in, in some, uh, I, I still have difficulty with that for, for what it's worth. But uh, to me, it's, it's a word that is overused, but uh, underdefined. Okay. After college, the, the internet says you went and started or ran an algorithmic trading fund. Is yeah. that true? And what yeah, that you, is true. What 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 made you do that? Um, so the uh, <laughs> the algo fund was um, uh, by happenstance to some extent. So I I did college um, at the end of college. I did a, a little. Well, I wouldn't even call it a startup. I built a product that I thought was interesting, um, ended up getting bought out by Aletersis, but then went and got a real job at Barcap. Um, I got really bored two years in, so I quit and I wanted to build a software product. And obviously I was interested in trading, so I wanted to kind of build that out. Um, unfortunately, when you build a software product, something that nobody tells you is that, you know, above and beyond your grit and determination and the quality of the product, one of the things that has the highest impact on whether or not it's successful as a market. And I launched it in uh, October of 08 uh, from memory, which if you remember was also when Lehman yes. collapsed. <laughs> so if, if you create any kind of uh, trading software to try and actually sell it to, well, you know, folks who work in trading floors and these are banks, et cetera, chances are they're not going to be uh, highly predisposed to buying your product when uh, it comes at the heel of the largest financial crash in the last hundred <laughs> years, which was which was the learning. So I kind of tried it for a little while. I think what I realized was, look, I think the product actually has some merit. I mean, it was um, it was a uh, uh, you know it discovered interesting pair trades, did half decent analysis. So I said, okay, I mean, I have a couple of options. I can kind of go off and um, I was doing my um, um, uh, M, uh, MA at the time or master's at the time. Uh, you could either kind of just continue, go do that full time and go figure out what you want to do. Or you can try running it as a hedge fund for a couple of years and see what happens. And that's what I decided to do. So I raised a bit of money, uh, ran that for, I want to say two years or so, and then decided to go business school. And it was a I mean, it was a little bit of a no-brainer decision in some ways because I was like, what's the worst that's going to happen? Like, you know, whatever 24-year-old kid like crashes a hedge fund is like, it's not even news because the entire financial services industry collapsed. <laughs> so I had effectively like the world's greatest call option, uh, right. which is kind of what I looked at it as and I deployed it. Should more people go for optionality early in their careers or should they um, bet big on some small on, on some opportunities that come to them? Because if you look at the, at the advice given to people, they're like, Oh, keep your options open. Don't do this too early in your life. I think people misunderstand optionality. Um, I think, you know, including me, uh, I think 
when the advice is given to um, students or otherwise, I think I think they think of optionality in terms of like, why don't you just keep building your skills and building your skills so that at some point your employability will be across, you know, 25 jobs as opposed to 10 jobs, right? So for example, if you're a, uh, I mean, it's probably a bad example. If you're a programmer, why don't you also spend time learning R and Stata so that you can also apply for data sets? Because that increases optionality. But I think that's a very uh, soft form of optionality. I think hard, like what actual optionality means is you not only need to improve your skill set in order to actually perform better at certain jobs, but um, or be uh, you know interested in certain jobs, but you also need optionality in the sense that like you need to know what you're shooting for. So there is no point in building optionality to simultaneously be a, I don't know, a master chef, an astronaut, and a financial advisor because there is no com- there's no combination amongst the three that gives you a reducible set of skills that you can actually go after. So I think the way I would say it is that more people should take bigger wax early in their career um, because that's what actually gives you the skills to A, or sorry, the knowledge to A, realize what you actually are good at or what you want to do. Um, B, some hard skills that are actually transferable plus or minus within the domains that you would want to play with. And C, some knowledge of what the world is actually like. Like you want to put your theoretical knowledge to test against the practical world. I think that's what I would call, you know, a better form of optionality that you kind of go deep in, maybe even if in like one year stints, two year stints, I think it's massively valuable. So the, the classic optionality push, I'm not sure I buy it. Okay. Um, you said you lived to eight Indian cities. What did that tell you about the country? I mean, although you were a child, you must have noticed something. I mean, uh, I like it, dif- describing India to outsiders is very difficult because um, I mean, I'm not saying you're an outsider, but like generally people ask me this, right? And it's it's, it's a hard question to answer in some ways because eight different eight Indian cities is equivalent to living in you know, of five different countries anywhere else in the world. Like the language is different. The people are different. The food is different. The clothes are different. Um, like it's, it's very, very difficult to kind of, I mean, it's semi irreducible in some ways. Um, and that's a, that's a hard thing to convey because people think of countries as homogeneous entities, even when they think of it as a, um, you know, multi-ethnic polyglot or whatever it might be. So, to me, number one was like I I really like um, I really liked different things about different places. Like I mean, you know, uh, the food was very different, so I could actually it was effectively engaging my tra- uh, wanderlust. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, like the hard bit was like I had to learn new languages occasionally when I moved from one place to the other because English wasn't you know lingua franca everywhere, right? So you have to learn Tamil somewhere, or you have to learn Hindi somewhere, or you have to learn at least be able to understand parts of Bengali or Sanskrit, uh, sorry, or uh, Punjabi somewhere. I think that's that kind of teaches you a fair bit of flexibility. That's very internally looking. As far as India as a whole, I was, I still am surprised at the sheer wide delta between how um, the development changes from one place to another. So to give an instance, 
um, Kerala, the state where I'm from, um, is, I mean, you can hardly see a village for miles because everything is relatively interconnected. People are densely packed together. It's one urban center after another. Um, you compare that with something like Madhya Pradesh, which is sort of in the center of the country, one of the largest states, and um, uh, quite a bit of which is rural. You kind of travel around, and for miles and miles and miles and miles, you barely can see anything. It's it's pretty interesting. So, in a weird way, like going through these different permutations, or not to mention the larger cities of Bombay or Delhi, kind of gives you a better appreciation for how large and diverse a country can be. I think that was pretty cool. Uh, outside of Kerala, which um, which state do you think has the best food? Ooh, that's a really good question. I mean, you're talking about intrinsically, right? Because otherwise the answer would be something like Delhi because every food is available there. Yeah, so, intrinsically, yeah. Hmm. I'm a huge fan of Bengali food. Ah, nice. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a giant fan of Bengali food. Uh, it's something that I discovered relatively early. I still love it. I can sort of eat it all the time. One of the other things, like one of my latest discoveries has been uh, I mean, this since marriage, but like it's um, uh, Rajasthani food. I didn't realize that it kind of existed. And I think um, it it's a close second, but if it mostly because I think it came later in life, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty fantastic. Because I think the interesting thing about Rajasthani food is um, because Rajasthan is a giant desert. And as a consequence, um, you know, they have to kind of come up with interesting ways of preserving the food over a period of time, which means that there's a lot of cooking that is unlike other parts of India because, you know, water is not readily available. A lot of the vegetables have to be, um, I don't know, they have to be kept for a longer period of time, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, I don't know, if I feel like it's probably not easily available outside, but um, uh, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, you get these you get these Rajasthani wannabe restaurants all across India. They, they, they these thali chains called Rajasthani. I I always wondered how authentic they were, but my 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 guess is not very now. Uh, so I have this. I think you know, in one of the uh, consequences of effectively like everybody knowing everything is that the top five foods from everywhere has become effectively ubiquitous and the. Uh, five to 25 foods from everywhere has become impossible to find. And it's the same in Kerala, by the way. Like, I think the last time I went back, I wanted to go and have like, you know, call, call it authentic Kerala food, right? Kerala food. Mm-hmm. And whenever you go to a restaurant, I mean, they will have, I don't know, they'll have some top dishes from North India, some top dishes from Kerala, like whatever, idli, dosa, a few of the others. But they would not have the long tail that, I am actually interested in. It frustrated me quite a bit because I'd go around trying to find somewhere that actually served, you know, um, a, sort of a particular plantain curry that I liked or something to that order and almost impossible to find. I feel like we're, that diversity of food that is easily available has kind of uh, started to disappear in some ways. But that's only in the big cities, right? If you if you went, it's to, only in the big cities, yeah. Yeah, if you went to a smaller town, you'd find mom and pop shops which served those. I mean, theoretically, again, it's a. I think there's a there's a discovery problem here. So even if you go to some of the smaller towns, chances are you wouldn't know which mom and pop shop to go to very easily. So if you want to have, I don't know, like 
um, uh, Idiapam, etc., then like you might be able to find some places that actually did it pretty well. But I think, I don't know, I feel discovery is a much harder problem than people give it credit for. And with mm. this particularly food, even smaller shops don't really do it. And, you know, it is a supply demand issue at some case, right? Because uh, if you're if you're a Keralaite living in Kerala, when you go outside, you want to go and eat pasta. You're not right. trying to go eat the, you're not going to go and eat the long tail, right? So right. it yeah, Kerala cuisine is not something that they would necessarily think of as cuisine because that's kind of what you've grown up with as a consequence. Yeah, what's actually available becomes um, quite different. Um, going a little further to sure after to after you grew up and now and now, um, could you replicate the college experience with internet subcultures? Because you're a huge fan of this. Define me like uh, ask me that again. I'm not sure I fully understand what you're asking. The college experience with internet or oh, purely with internet subcultures. Yeah, you wrote about this a little. Yes. Um, so the, I think it's difficult. And I think it's difficult because even with the internet subcultures and the massively online presence that people have nowadays, I'm not, I feel, and maybe this is me feeling this way because um, I'm not fully exposed yet. I feel that physical presence is underrated. And I am saying that having lived through, you know, the, the lockdown where everybody and was still talking about the amazing benefits of physical presence. Um, so th- I feel like college experience is um, an experience because it provides sort of a bunch of things in a bundled product, right? It's not just about education. It's not just about a degree. It's not just about credential. It's about the fact that you know, similar to like when you go for NS or whatever, it's like you're stuck in a physical location with a certain group of people with whom you might share a reasonable level of intellectual affinity, maybe, maybe not. Um, And as a consequence, you just would bounce off against those people for a long enough period that you actually start developing um, strong, long-term, reasonably unbreakable relationships. I think that's difficult to form in internet subcultures because internet subcultures are much more fragile and malleable. I think that's to me, one of the big deltas. So for example, um, whether it's, you know, let's say crypto subculture, for example, right? I mean, it's one of the new ones that exist today. I mean, you can kind of go deep into it. You can be part of the DeFi community and the NFT community, and you can kind of be engaged with them. And I'm sure you will make great friends, et cetera, through it. But Pretty much across the board, number one, you're not you're you're not forced in any meaningful sense to interact with people over a period of time. So escape hatches are available very easily. I mean, all you need to do is to log out, you know, close the window. It's too easy in some ways. I feel like you need a little bit more of a pressure cooker environment if you want to kind of replicate the college experience, because otherwise you have a lot of um, uh, pretty pretty good loose. Um, ties and this is especially true when those pretty good loose ties can actually translate to um, 
Uh, well, in crypto, there's monetary gain. So it helps when everybody's a millionaire. But even in things like, you know, Twitter, et cetera, quite often what I, what I think the way it works is that at some point, people do translate it over to a physical space, right? I mean, it's like a, it's a much slower version of what the college experience actually gives you. You mm-hmm. meet interesting people, you talk for a long period of time on online, et cetera. And at some point, you, you translate that to physical space, which reinforces the bonds that you have with these people already. So to me, like the, 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 the real importance of physical space is something that we still underestimate in some, in some ways. Okay. But if people, okay, if people really need a uh, physical space, are you not bullish on the, on your proposal to make the modular, um, the, the smallest element of college, the online course? How would that how would that happen in a in a in a world where physical spaces uh, physical interactions are underrated? You were asking about um, uh, like the the smallest possible component of what could comprise a university, right? Right. I think I mean I was thinking that there is a persistent meme about business schools, for example, where you know you kind of mentioned that everything that needs to be learned about business school can probably be learned online pretty quickly, but the actual value is in the network and the and the sort of uh, credential that it provides, right? So, to me, that kind of answers the question of like how do you kind of substantially increase, um, or sorry, substantially decrease the actual. Um, <laughs> like learning physical presence component, because most of these things can be done within a year, whereas keeping all of the other parts of universities such as network, etc. So in some ways, I think of like, you know, the one-year business school in INSEAD as a great forcing mechanism to answer that exact same question. Uh, how do you actually have a university experience in a short period of time um, while keeping some of the benefits alive? What obviously, I don't think that necessarily translates to undergrad as well. Because to me, like, once you're in grad school, ideally you already kind of know a little bit about what you want to do afterwards. Whereas in undergrad, it has to be a little bit more of an open-ended exploration. And open-ended exploration takes longer periods of time. What I think we should do better is like not make learning necessarily contingent on the physical space that we occupy. There's no reason for me to want to go to lecture theater one or, you know, study hall three in order for me to get the information that is necessary to understand that particular subject. I think that model is um, pretty irrevocably broken. It was broken 20 years ago. It's still broken. What is important is perhaps you know, to actually do some of those um, learning exercises, etc., with others. And what is especially broken is linking whatever you're studying to anything, something in the real world, so that you actually can see, you know, you can get better at it, right? I mean, rather than try to pass an exam, you're trying to produce some version of an output. I think that universities still suck, really suck at that. I mean, my favorite part of undergrad was... Um, a summer project that I did trying to teach a robot how to walk. And this was sort of 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I forget. And it was amazing because we had to kind of solve things that we supposedly learned in 
dynamics and programming across the board. Like there's a whole bunch of problems that we actually had to solve. And in, it was in actually solving those things while trying to do a project that we actually figured out if we learned something. Um, I think it's still highly underrated. The idea that you need um, project-based learning, not in the sense that you just have to do something and produce paper, but actually produce an output. Then would, would that be extended to school also? I mean, I can say that because in because in the IB, around 20% of your grade is dependent on this project you do, and it's done with varying levels of interest and academic honesty. But uh, the way I see it is that the majority of people wouldn't um, wouldn't put effort into it because it's really, really, because the skill you require in doing a project is go go do some, go do one thing, uh, go work on one problem that may or may, may, may not work uh, for months at a time and do it under a deadline. So, um, number one, I think IB does this better than, you know, the alternatives, right? I think um, if you think of a continuum from, you know, the, the old school syllabus-based learning to whatever the modern equivalent is that goes on in Elon Musk's school, like IB falls somewhere in the middle, right? IB does it better. I think what IB gets wrong as well is it still thinks of projects as a way to teach X rather than trying to figure out if kids actually want to learn X, point number one. And number two being a question that like months-long projects suck. I mean, they suck when you're getting paid to do them when you're an adult. I mean, I can only imagine how much they suck when you're, you know, 15, right? I mean, I don't know whether most people would have an interest in most things that school teaches if you ask them. To me, that's, that's an indictment of the syllabus creation. I think projects should be more plentiful and shorter in duration and easier to create an output as you're, as you're studying. I think as, even as a generic skill set, I think that would be important to teach. So, but to me, that comes down to the point of view of how would you actually make IP education slightly better as opposed to, do you want to go completely down that line or not? Uh, you write on the internet, what, what made you th uh, do that? Like one day you woke up and said, okay, I'm gonna uh, start a blog, why? Pretty much. Um, I mean, writing on the internet is about, you know, going back to the original point about um, optionality. Writing on the internet is about as, uh, <laughs> has the highest variance of activity amongst pretty much anything else that we can think about, right? Um, so as a consequence, I think if you're um, semi-instrumental about writing on the internet, you're most likely never going to do it because in any uh, rational analytic sense, the question of should I write on the internet and the answer pretty much always has to be no. So the way I thought about it was, you know, I just thought that it would be fun to try my hand at writing because I was trying different things during the pandemic lockdown where I felt the urge that um, you need to start trying to create more public output. And I tried my hand at a couple of other things and uh, writing is something I always loved, but I just, you know, the outside view always kept me from doing it. So now I said, I'm going to write for two years. I'm going to see if I'm having fun with it. If I'm having fun with it, then I'll continue writing it. 
And if I'm not having fun with it, I'll continue. I'll, I'll stop it. But at least in the two years, I'll learn something. And effectively, I just woke up a day and said, I'm going to do it. And that was it. Do you judge your writing by the views it gets or by what's your what's your metric for success? <laughs> I, I was very um, explicit early on to say that I will judge my success maybe you know, several months in a row or as opposed to sort of anything on a lower cadence. Okay. Um, so the answer is no. <laughs> uh, and the only reason I did that is like, I mean, I'm not doing this instrumentally, like getting um, a, a blog post go viral or like getting a lot of page views. It's nice, but like I'm not a journalist, I'm not charging for my stack, so I, it doesn't bother me one way or the other, right? What is useful to measure is how many interesting conversations am I having as a result of writing it, and how many new ideas am I getting as a result of writing it, or how many new insights am I getting as a result of writing it. And according to both of those, um, it's been a resounding success. Um, but as you will rightly note, Neither of those are highly quantitative metrics that I would be trying to optimize on any short-term basis. Okay. Uh, what's your creative process like? How do you go from idea to blog post? Um, it is very much uh, what you see is what you get kind of writing. I think um, there are some posts that are very easy where you feel like, you know, you just write the way you think and usually it just comes out very easily. So the university one, for example, was something, one of the ones like that. The recent one that I wrote in Patronage was one like that, where I kind of, you know, soup to nuts, it's pretty clear as to what I wanted to write and how I wanted to write it. So that was very easy. Some of them are... Um, little bit more complicated where I actually have an idea and have to try and figure out what the right format of presenting it or like what the right structure is in order to kind of put things together. The the longer one that I wrote on um, theory of progress is one like that because there's a model that was that I wanted to play around with it in there so I, I was playing with RStudio for sort of days on end trying to see what the different things would actually look like. So it varies a little bit but I think for the majority of things that I write, I mean, the benefit is I'm writing about things that I want to write about or I'm interested in. So it's not, there's no, I don't even feel like there's much of a process because I still read the same things I read or write, you know, um, except that right now, okay, like when I need to kind of have an output, I need to either remember research that I had read elsewhere or try and go off and look for a specific piece of research that should be there that either confirms or changes my conclusion of the post. So the the benefit of writing weekly is that you have to do it um, pretty fast. And the benefit of writing weekly is that mistakes that you make will get papered over pretty quickly. So mm -hmm. that kind of push forward. Why do you write with your real name though? Can't you be a pseudonymous person and, you know, uh be the anonymous, the, the famous blogger whose name nobody knows? 
you know, I thought about it in the beginning. I didn't think I, excuse me, I don't think I put my um, name on it for like maybe the first few weeks or whatever. Um, I think ultimately, number one, I'm way too lazy to be pseudonymous. I think, I think being pseudonymous takes a lot of effort. I'm not sure it's all that great. Like, I know there's, you know, Scott Alexander is kind of the, um, the, the, the guru of pseudonymous blogging in some ways, but I'm not sure why it has, I'm not sure why it's better in many ways. Like if you want to write a lot of really controversial topics about, I don't know, race and gender, and you're worried about getting canceled, then sure. But if you're worried about those things as a, as a theoretical reason, then I think you're probably jumping the shark a little bit. I mean, the person who is pushing for pseudonymous everything in the world the most, you know, Balaji, writes under his real name, right? So it's like, we don't know where he writes under a uh, 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 pseudonym, right? No, I'm not saying he does not write under pseudonym. I'm saying he definitely does write under his own name anyway. Right. So my point being that, like, ultimately, when you express an opinion. The fact that you are willing to put your real name on it, I don't. I think it's, if anything, it's a positive. It's not a negative. And um, if I look at bloggers that I generally respect, or writers that I generally respect, or essays that I generally respect, I think pseudonymity is occasionally valuable, but it's by no means the de facto mode of expression. Um, it never was, and it shouldn't be, right? I mean, there were pamphleteers during the early years of the American Revolution where they did something similar, like there were pseudonymous writers. But everybody kind of knew, number one, that it was whatever, Ben Franklin writing it. And mm-hmm. number two, like he started writing on his own name pretty quickly anyway. So right. I'm, I'm slightly more suspicious of this idea that everybody's going to be pseudonymous forever. Because I don't know, carrying around two identities just seems a lot of work. Um, Superman doesn't seem to have all that much fun. <laughs> Right. I mean, the the other way of seeing it is that you can't use your social capital from being pseudonymous on the internet to getting actual offers and getting actual stuff done in real life. <laughs> if you, I mean, in the and and it's super hard to maintain your pseudonymity. I mean, as hard as he tried, Scott Alexander isn't pseudonymous anymore. From everything that I know, he hasn't been pseudonymous for like the last six years or more. Because everybody kind of knew who he was. So, I mean, sure, you can you can try, I suppose. But I think the um, I'm not sure it's all that valuable. It's kind of my point of view. I, I don't see the benefit of taking on the psychic cost of constantly switching identities. Um, when I was much younger, I read Ender's Game. And looking back, it's funny that the most far-fetched idea within Ender's Game was the fact that Peter Wigan um, managed to take over the world by having a pseudonymous identity and making great arguments. Um, it, it's kind of it's kind of funny that that's the that's the part of the book that seems most stated compared to you know war against uh, uh, space insects. Okay. 
But okay, so I'd like to talk a little more about the post you wrote recently that got a lot of traction. What, how would you design your talent in uh, investing fund? Let's say I gave you, I, mean, I somebody gave you uh, a billion dollars and said, here you go, uh, find the best, get the highest ROI, however defined out of this. Do I have to invest in kids or do I have to invest in young talent? Like what's my constraint? I'd say, yeah, go for young talent. Um, I mean, if it's, if it's, um, you're talking about the, the post on, um, on Medici and TL on right, the fact right, that TL right. fellowships was, um, uh, so su- super successful. successful. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the takeaway for me from that is that there is an enormous wellspring of people who are um, potentially highly impactful, yet kind of get dragged through the um, same old status quo, go to university, get a job kind of method that everyone else seems to do. So if I had a, you know, if I had to design a, a larger scheme like that, I think there would be some two components, component one, uh, proactive scouting in order to try and go speak with as many of these in college campuses, et cetera, as possible, try and identify the kids who are actually doing something interesting or have the potential to do something interesting and offer them the opportunity to kind of drop out and do it. I think surely scaling up um, TL's program actually has tremendous ROI potential. Um, you know, it'll almost be like a, a pre-YC, YC in some ways because I feel like um, uh, that's kind of the outcome. So if I have to play in the talent space, I think to me that is a you know very easy, clear way of actually trying to go about doing it. Number two uh, is I, I don't see any reason why this is also not applicable to early career individuals, you know, folks who have gone and joined either other tech companies, banks, um, consulting firms, et cetera in order to try and induce them to jump, drop out and um, start a company as well. A lot of them don't do it for very simple reasons. Like, you know, I want to continue living in my house and pay my bills. And I don't want to lose the social capital of not being able to get a job when I come back, which is actually not, it's a pretty small hurdle, but that's kind of what stops people from doing it. Now, the biggest um, question that comes in these scenarios is, if you induce somebody to actually go off and become an entrepreneur, is that better? Or do you should you only encourage those people who are kind of born entrepreneurs? You know, it's a nature versus nurture question in some ways here. And I think I remember seeing this analysis um, um, of folks who kind of were forced entrepreneurs in some ways. I think they did a natural experiment around the 08 recession and found out that they actually did much, much better in the aggregate than... Um, the born entrepreneurs, so to speak. So I'm pretty confident in the possibility that encouraging people in that fashion to go off and do it, whether it's in batches or otherwise, actually is probably going to have high ROI. And that applies both to college students, but also to maybe, you know, early career professionals who might not be willing to drop out and do it for other sorts of reasons. Um, you, you like I have friends, oh, sorry, go on. You were saying something. No, I was just saying like, I have friends who I think would, I would give personal capital to in a heartbeat who don't want to 
sort of who will not quit and start something for the most absurd of reasons, similar to what you said. Like, I think net-net, they'll all quit and start something for $100,000, which is very minimal, right? $100,000 plus the fact that they're probably not going to lose their social capital slash prestige if they wanted to kind of go back to any kind of uh, normal job. It's it's surprising to what extent that is not capitalized on. I think even for mid-career professionals, um, if you think about business school, one of the main reasons people go to business school is you know career progression. But one of the other main reasons why people end up there is the fact that they would just want to take a two-year break from working life or they want to go off and do something else because they've been working for so long. As a consequence, that impetus is something that can be easily capitalized on. But I mean, there definitely places that that can do this, right? Um, big tech companies have lots of smart people with lots of um, who can uh, start the u- unicorns, hundreds of them. So in 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 theory, at least they should be able to tell them, um, you go start your company. If it doesn't work out, you'll still have your job here at Google or um, Facebook. Absolutely. I think Google did this best by initially having the 20% project, if I remember, which they themselves stole from um, or stole, copied from, I think, 3M, which had something similar, 20% of their hours they can dedicate to something that is a personal interest. I don't think they realistically do this anymore, um, if I remember. So uh, both 3M as well as uh, Google, I mean, it would be difficult to argue that this was in any way a negative impact, right? I mean, worked positively for both of them because 3M is a extraordinarily innovative company and so was Google. So they discontinued it. I want to say like once they grew pretty large or too large for this to actually be um, useful. I mean, Gmail came out of um, the 20% work, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure. So the AdSense, if I remember, came out of that, like, they've had tremendous successes that have substantially impacted the company's bottom line that have come out of a way, come out in many ways by allowing people that kind of flexibility inside the company. So that kind of tells me that like allowing that flexibility for people to go off and innovate outside the company is not exactly, um, not exactly hard. I think even today, I think some of the SaaS companies still do it. I'm pretty sure. I think Atlassian does it from memory. But that's but that's giving them time in company time. If you if we Indeed. took the fellowship idea to like completely as what's written, you you tell smart people you you let them quit their job of sorts and say uh, go work on this. If it doesn't work out, you get your job back. Oh, like that? Yes. So I think the large companies I feel are have the resources and the ability to do this, but actually almost none of them do. I mean, informally, places like Google had this thing that like if you're a you know PM and you quit to start your company and didn't work out, you could usually kind of go back. I mean, there's always the potential or the ability for you to kind of go back and, and join the company again. I know folks have done it. So it's like, but it was it's never a um, formalized program that they would do. And part of the reason they wouldn't want to do it as a formalized program is because that directly impinges on their recruitment efforts on the other hand, right? Because they're kind of almost putting a barrier in their own way to be able to do it. 
the one way that some of these companies started doing it is like, if you quit and start something, we might try to seed you or we might try to give you a little bit of capital in order for you to go off and do something on your own. Um, nobody like for sort of a whole host of primarily organizational reasons have actually kind of jumped in and taken the hit. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, even Google had a venture capital arm originally, it primarily started investing in outside companies and pretty soon got spun out in order to just do the capital allocation job full time. Because, I mean, if you are the person in charge of figuring out if certain talented companies or teams should get capital and you do that inside Google versus outside Google, your own personal remuneration is massively impacted. So the reason I think it is much more likely when a single benefactor, like, a, you know, in this case I call Teal, right? Or any billionaire, actually does it is that the decision-making is not, it doesn't need to be um, congruent with the rest of the decision-making that actually happens within an organization. It is very hard for one part of the organization to be incentivized well enough that they are able to go off and do like this. I mean, like an example, if you want to see of how this has evolved in the real world is to look at corporate venture capital funds, which does a slightly different form, right? I mean, it's, inside corporate people who are kind of incentivized to go off and find innovative technologies that they need to fund to grow with the bottom line of both strategic as well as financial bottom line. Um, to a large extent, a lot of them have gotten spun out. I mean, we talked about Google. It was the same thing. You know, it was the same thing. Sapphire came out of Salesforce. It was the same thing with like, you know, they got spun out of Santander here. Like, you look at a lot of them, they've kind of realized that if you want to get good talent in order to identify these people and actually be able to reward them or remunerate, then you do need to step out of the confines of um, an individual organizational decision-making cycle. I think it's a death knell otherwise. So theoretically, while what you're saying could make sense in the sense that Google could say, you know, you're whatever you were rated highly in the last three performance reviews. If you quit and go off and start something, we will take 3%. And if it doesn't work out, we will actually hire you back. That like the, the Google HR would have a fit because that goes pretty much against almost all of the efforts they're making to attract and retain talent. But we, we do this in some way with the smartest people from college, right? They end up in, in, in a grad school where they get, um, a paltry amount, but they get the, at least they supposedly get the freedom to research what they want. Why hasn't this worked out that well? So I was having this conversation sort of somewhere. I think it does work to a large extent, is my understanding. Like in grad school, which in this case, I presume we are both talking about PhDs. Right. Um, after their initial whatever classes, et cetera, there is tremendous freedom to go off and research and come out with, you know, things that they actually like as a result of which they will get, um, uh, you know, tenure track professorship. And if they do well enough there, then they do go off and get tenure. To a large extent, even though there's arguments against the ossification of the industry that comes from, um, you know, this particular track, I think it does kind of work. I mean, we do see tremendous amount of, you know, great research coming out of very decon departments across the world. And, you know, it's worth saying that the strongest arguments against tenure come from, you know, Mercatus Center, where Tyler 
has built a coterie of really strong, eclectic, unorthodox thinkers around him who are all tenured, which is why, you know, they're happily able to take the risk to be able to say something like this to the outside world. So in some ways, I've kind of come around to the point of view, at least, I mean, it's, a, it's still a loosely held point of view, and I'm happy to be convinced in any direction that it's probably still valuable. The grad school experience is valuable. The problem with grad school experience as a, as a um, comparison to what I am saying is getting into grad school requires you to do such tremendous amount of effort in order to showcase that you are the type of person who should be let into grad school, that it almost forces pretty much anyone who has any, um, shall we say, entrepreneurial intent, it selects them out. Because, you know, you need to do a crazy amount of work to be able to get in. And to do that crazy amount of work, I mean, if imagine if you had put selection hurdles as onerous to be able to get into TL Fellowship it wouldn't have succeeded. So I think, uh, you know, if you put up high enough barriers, it will self-select for the people who are willing to climb over them, right? Right. The way other people would put it, it self-selects for the kind of person who would want to do a PhD. Not sure if they, if they meant it uh, in a good way or not. But why didn't you do a PhD? If, 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 you, if I search up your name on the internet, I get six papers on asset bubbles and macroeconomics. Um, you seem like you could have done a PhD. I, I thought about it very, very, I mean, it was almost to the point of a coin flip, whether I should do PhD or business school. Um, I think two things kind of put me off doing a PhD. Number one was that my... Um, academic um, career, so to speak, and you know, doing the masters, talking to all of the professors, et cetera. And this is probably a little bit of a, um, you know, in hindsight, a bias because most of the people I talked to were sort of, you know, Asian universities, et cetera, right? I mean, they're not necessarily the iconoclasts that you would speak to in the US. None of them seemed particularly excited about economics overall. They all seem excited about making the smallest possible contribution in the smallest corner of like some minute arcane economic argument that nobody actually cared about. And that just bugged me. I was like, I took economics while I was, I mean, I studied, I did my master's when I was working because, and I took it because I was actually interested and excited about econ. And I was like, why is, why are the rest of these people not as interested or excited about econ? I didn't have a great answer to that. (laughs) <laughs> so when I, when I saw the academic world close up and I saw the extent to which um, folks were interested in, um, the extent to which folks were um, doing, I don't know, relatively minor edits in the overall economic canon, a lot of which the output you could predict from input, I didn't seem like a world that I would particularly enjoy spending five more years on. Um, that said, even with all of that, it was a bit of a touch and go decision. I think, you know, intellectual curiosity wise or exploration wise, I still think academia is pretty awesome, despite, you know, the tremendous amount of pain that it actually heaps on top of people who want to kind of go in there. And I'm not just talking about the fact that the number of PSE students and number of, um, you know, tenure uh, track roles are such 
it's so divergent. I mean, I find folks that who have spent, I don't know, five years on a biochem PhD and then end up working as a data scientist, which just seems, I mean, I hope they enjoyed their PhD, but a lot of them didn't, right? So it just, uh, it seems like a pathway that was actually really great maybe 20 years ago, but nowadays it doesn't seem particularly uh, all that attractive. But that's, honestly, I was, uh, I don't know, 5149 was going for a PhD. A friend of mine who hates, she hates the idea that, that people do engineering and then go for an MBA because she says that if you want to do an MBA, why don't you do a bachelor's in, in, uh, in a management or business related field in the first place anyways? What's your argument on that? I mean, my argument is much simpler. It's how would you know what you're interested in? I think that that presumes that you know what you want when you're 17 and that's the same thing as what you should want when you're whatever 25 and to me that strikes me as um highly implausible that that would be the case i think where your friend has a point is that mba is not really an educational degree in the sense that it doesn't teach you all that much it is a credentialing degree in the sense that if you do it from a top school, you have a lot more doors that open to you because you're seen as a generically smart person as opposed to a, somebody who has actually learned a lot, which is true. And that's totally fair. But that has almost nothing to do with why somebody would or would not do an MBA. Um, and I, at least I can tell you from the number of people at like from the cross section in my um, class, a lot of them didn't do MBA because they wanted to do management. I mean, some did it for that, but some did it because they wanted to get a promotion. Some did it because their company was paying for it. Some did it because they wanted to change jobs or change field or change geography. Some did it because they wanted to take a two-year break from study, like from working life. So it's a it's a little bit more of an eclectic um, decision-making criteria. Okay. Um you, I presume you must have seen a lot of people go to the, the early stages of their careers. What's the biggest mistake they make? If you could generalize of all the mistakes they could make, they make. It's a great question. Um, I think people don't ask themselves whether they like what they're doing or which parts of what they're doing do they actually like. I feel like, and this perhaps is more applicable to the, you know, more analytical amongst us, but I feel a lot of people are very good at asking, you know, should I do X or Y in order to get to Z, right? I mean, I have like a conversation like that at least once a week of, I want to get into um, bench capital, what should I do? Should I go and study finance or should I go and work in an investment bank? Should I go and do X, Y, Z? And I have to kind of, I, I think I have repeated this sort of often enough that I think you should not try to optimize your path before figuring out whether you like what you're doing. I think my single biggest piece of advice for any anybody early on in their career, even later on, but especially early on, is to ask yourself what you actually enjoy. And not to the point of view of, you know, um, I mean, it can't be as generic as I hate banking or, you know, 
I, uh, I hate oil and gas or what, whatever it might be, but just ask yourself which parts of your day, very specifically, do you actually like and enjoy? Do you enjoy having to interact with a lot of people or no? Do you actually enjoy being analytical or no? Do you actually enjoy speaking in public to other people or no? And like, it's important to kind of start having an understanding of what you actually like, because um, I think we kind of, uh, generally speaking, a lot of the advice just skips over the part of what you like and just goes directly to what you should do to maximize X. And I, I don't find that to be a great way to go through life. It's your, 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 have you seen the Hindi movie, Three Idiots? I have. And that's the, I, I, I find your answer to be same as the answer that, you know, go do what you like and it'll work out at the end. But I never liked that answer. I saw the movie when I was like, I don't know, a tiny, a little kid, but I never liked it because it assumes this sort of privilege you can have that I can do what I like and I'm going to have a comfortable life doing it, which, and people tend to like occupations where there's a sort of a, a long right tail, which, which earns a lot of money, like uh, wildlife photography or whatever, but for for 95% of people who want to be who want to go into that profession they'd be better off uh, going into a more normally distributed profession like accounting or computer programming so um i agree with you sort of broadly but like you know there are three caveats to what you said that's important to understand number one is the fact that um making a decision to go into something that has a longer right tail will almost always um, presuppose that, you know, the outside percentage of your success is low, right? I mean, that's true of pretty much anything. That's true of my profession. I feel like, you know, number of people who, um, whether it's any of the colleges that I got into, whether it's the job that I got, whether it's McKinsey, whether it's Venture Capital, what have you, these are all highly improbable um, circumstances, sorry, highly improbable things to get. So, Yes, in some ways, like caveat number one is that yes, privilege does apply, obviously. I mean, you know, you're, um, it, when I sort of grew up, if I wanted to be an astronaut, chances are pretty low because, you know, India doesn't really have a space program. So it would have been a silly dream for me to have in the first place. <laughs> um, so that's, I guess, caveat number one. Caveat number two is that there is a big difference between the rara, like do what you like and it'll work out versus like figure out what you like because i think what you're suggesting is the corner case where somebody figures out that they love painting and that's all they love and cannot make a living sort of being a painter five years down the line ten years down the line like to me both of those are related but not necessarily the same thing right i mean if you realize that what you want to do is painting you spend you should be able to spend to our original conversation, like early on in the, in, in the, in the podcast about optionality, you should be able to spend a couple of years trying to figure out if this is something that you can actually make a decent go of. And if you can't make a decent go of it, then you have to reassess, right? Either you're not a great enough painter, like you thought, either the world doesn't actually value what you're producing in a sufficient fashion that actually gets you, you know, to be able to sort of make a living off of it. And, or you can say that like, I love being a painter. I hate living a life, you know, living off of ramen noodles in a corner flat with like three other flatmates. 
So I guess I need to do something else in order to make my life slightly more meaningful. In this case, that might be taking a job that allows me to pay the bills and makes me puts me in a position where I don't have to worry about money anymore. I think that's a perfectly valid trade-off. None of which suggests that you should not know what your what actually interests you or what actually excites you. I think the world would be far, far better if more people tried out for stuff that they think they like. And even if they, you know, 90% of them decide later on that they don't particularly want to do it, it'll still be better if they tried. I think that's my thesis. Do you think most people, are people overconfident about their abilities or, under, or underconfident about their abilities? Because the, the ability to know, to calibrate your perceptions is missing, I think. I think people in general are wildly underconfident about their abilities. They're especially wildly underconfident if you consider their abilities to not just be their ability at time T, but their ability at time, you know, T plus one year, where they actually spend some time actually working on it or focusing on it. Is that? I mean, to your point, because... people might. I think the 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 leakage angle in what I'm saying is when people might say things like, "I am, you know, fascinated by," or "I'm extremely interested in becoming a, a rock star," so I should spend my time, you know, playing guitar for the next sort of two years. It's possible there will definitely be leakages of that kind. But my point, even if you say that you want to become a musician, you like asking yourself that question will still help you figure out a little bit more about is what you like actually, you know, is it playing the guitar? Is it writing the music? Is it performing the music? Is it recording the music 75 times over and over? Is it playing around with the different genres? I mean, there's there's questions that you can ask that actually help you understand what you actually like. None of which tells you whether you should or should not become a musician because there's a, you know, market <laughs> interferes with that analysis. But not asking that question is, I, I, to me, the single biggest mistake that most um, early career professionals make because they're going to go on a treadmill, right? You don't ask the question, you're never going to be able to even get close to doing what you actually like. And if there is one thing that I will bet on, it's that, you know, the like the job markets are pretty um, uh, diverse. I mean, it's far more diverse than I would have expected at this time in my, like, at least when I was sort of that age, because to me, the world was engineers, doctors and bankers. So <laughs> it is for many people even today. But yeah, you worked at McKinsey. People complain mm -hmm. that consultants don't um, cons consultants don't make good venture capitalists because they've never built anything themselves. What's your response to that complaint? I mean, a lot of the venture top venture capitalists are consultants, so that kind of is a it kind of falls on its face. I think the reason people say that is because the consulting um, point of view is very much about you know, creating a narrative that actually makes your client happy, right? Plus with, with whatever you want. I mean, it, the narrative has to be data backed. It has, it has to be a decent story, but it does have to make your client happy because you have a client, okay. which is fair. And obviously that doesn't work in venture capital. The reason they say it doesn't apply to venture capital is because venture capital is more iconoclastic and you're supposed to be able to do um, out of the box thinking and invent, invest in, uh, you know, things that everybody else is saying no to. Now, the reality of venture capital is slightly different to the mythology of venture capital. The reality of venture capital is that a large percentage of the returns that is made by a large percentage of the people comes from 
following the herd. Like, you know, the best investments that I've seen some of my friends make have come from following the herd, right? I mean, investing in Stripe in 2017 at whatever the valuation was or investing in, you know, Coinbase around that time. I mean, there's there's plenty of examples of people who have followed the momentum trading strategy in venture capital and gotten and done really, really well. So off the bat, I feel like people are comparing the reality of consulting with the mythology of venture capital, which kind of um, makes it easy to create <laughs> these uh, these narratives. So I doesn't I I don't know it doesn't apply. Um, you know, like even if you extrapolate from just consulting to things like whatever equity research and so on and so forth. I mean, Bill Gurley was an equity research analyst. Uh, Mary Meeker of Bond was, I think she was also an equity research analyst. So it's like, it's very common for people who have spent their time deeply analyzing a sector, an industry, a company to then go and figure out if there are places there that they would want to deploy capital. I'm not, these are not um, antagonistic points of view. To me, they are fairly congruent. Um, algorithmic trading is sort of like I would compare it to gamifying the system because it, they, they both fall into the same uh, way as me. There's, there's another person who's a famous VC, uh, Chamath, whose last name I can't pronounce, who used to work at Deutsche mm-hmm. Bank's uh, derivative trading desk. Does any of the experience from, from that um, translate into your venture capital job? Um. Personally, yes. I think that as far as the wider VC market is going on, yes, still, but it's still early. I think the big thing that algo trading teaches you is that you you can create strategies that are independent of your particular points of view or theories, knowledge, etc. That can actually go back and you know that can actually just you can deploy and that'll make you money. Now, venture capital for the longest time has been a you know, people have looked at it as an artisanal um, part of finance, right? I mean, you have to meet the founders, you have to look her in the eye, you have to kind of shake their hand, you have to, you know, smell and feel their office. There's like a whole list of things that you thought you had to do in order to do a good investment. And over the last decade or maybe half decade, every single one of those taboos has been broken. Like literally every single one. You know, you thought that you had to uh, only invest in whatever, you know, the, the, the computer science grads out of Stanford and that got broken as ecosystems grew up elsewhere. You thought you only had to invest in uh, software and the hardware companies have gone, you know, come out and kind of proven that wrong. You thought you had to meet people in person. It was like a massive uh-huh. taboo, right? I mean, it's the main reason Andreessen said he was originally going to only invest in whatever the 20 minute drive from their offices in Sandal Road. That got broken pretty substantively over the last year. So as each and every single one of these sort of supposed taboos got broken, it's getting closer and closer to the traditional world of finance. And if you look at what's happening in the venture capital world, my um, the, the biggest competition doesn't come from VC to VC because they're playing the same game. The biggest competition comes from the hedge funds coming in. Like, you know, Tiger deployed six and a half billion in three months which is like, if you told any VC that that is going to happen three years ago or two years ago, forget that one year ago, they would have scoffed at you. They would have said, there's no way, but they've, they're doing an algorithmic strategy, right? They figured out that um, you, can pr- you can create a market bet on series B plus startups and net net, you know, 
if you, a bunch of them will die, a bunch of them will plateau, a bunch of them will sort of grow as big as Stripe. And for us, the expected return actually makes sense. Once you know that, then your deployment strategy is very different to if you're looking at every company individually and figuring out if the founder makes sense, et cetera, et cetera. So like, I think algorithmic trading to me, it gives me at least a far more systemic view on how the actual industry functions. I feel like it's a view that is being forced upon the VCs now <laughs> by the external world. Um, as the VC market grows, I mean, it's now whatever, $100 billion of deployment a year. Naturally, you know, the, the big boys are going to step in, right? I mean, Insight stepped in, I think, two years ago, three years ago. They were like my biggest competition in Europe because any... Any company that we would go take a look at, you know, we would do the analysis and then we'd meet the management, we'd meet the sales teams, we'd meet the marketing teams. By the time, you know, you dilly-dally your way to making a decision, Insight would have come in, met them, given a term sheet and moved on because <laughs> they can. And that, I mean, Tiger's taken that strategy and dialed it up to 11. So I feel like... Um, it's a it's a lesson that is being taught to the industry, and I guess we are learning it under duress. Um, but is it is it even possible to gamify venture capital? The way that the quant funds did it was that you got like terabytes of data every day, and you could find correlations in all that data. But there's not as much in venture capital. How how do they do it? I think it's a it's the same strategy. It's a different set of data, is what I would say. So, um, like I think even in quant funds, you can split them into like the high frequency trading funds, like Getco, who actually do have, you know, tick by tick trading data for commodities and sort of random exchanges, so they can do sort of slightly more sophisticated analysis. But you don't always need that, right? I mean, your AUM, um, your assets under management and the amount of data that you have available and your trading window actually defines your strategy. So like, it's not fait accompli that, you know, just because you have less data in a private market like venture capital, you are therefore resigned to not being able to do the same strategies. So to give you sort of a couple of examples, I mean, figuring out how SaaS companies work was like an expertise like two years ago or three years ago. It's no longer an expertise. Nowadays, it's I don't want to say commoditized, but a lot more people can actually do it. And because a lot more people can actually do it, all of a sudden you can look at the Bessemer SaaS index and try to figure out, okay, so the company that I'm looking at, it is median in this, it's above average in that, which means all I need to take a bet on is whether or not this particular company is going to be able to you know, um, increase their penetration into Fortune 500 within these two sectors in the coming you know, whatever, two years. I think that's a much easier thing to underwrite. So they've taken the secondary trading um, strategies that they used to deploy in the public markets and now are able to do it on primary investment strategies in the private markets. It's different, but like if you, if you simplify it, absolutely. I mean, I, I had this uh, thought at some point that the best strategies to, uh, if you were a private investor in the last say decade, your best strategies were also the stupidest strategies. <laughs> For example, your best strategy would have been to buy Bitcoin and hold, right? We know people who have done that. I mean, it's in many ways the stupidest strategy, but it's performed the best. Um, 
Another one of the best strategies would have been any software company that goes IPO, any company, any IPO, you buy into it, right? Buy into it heavily. You would have done ridiculously well if you followed that strategy, which is, it's not supposed to happen because it's a stupid strategy. This is the strategy that like, you know, like, a, like if you're a VC, you would say an unthinking public market portfolio manager would be just doing, right? Like somebody in Fidelity would have some random allocation, they'll buy into every software IPO that comes. They wouldn't be able to tell the difference between, I don't know, like um, Coinbase on Uber and Spotify or whatever. Like they'll just buy into whatever. I mean, Spotify is a bad example because they're uh, direct listing, but they would be able to buy into everything. UiPath, if you did that, you would actually be sitting on ridiculous gains, which is interesting. So my point being that the markets are not nearly as efficient as uh, we make it out to be. And number two, the dumb trading strategies here work because of something inherent in our current market situation and current market dynamics. So when I look at um, Tiger's method of deployment, to me, it reminds me a lot of the YC method of deployment, right? You do the basic amount of analysis to make sure that this is not a bad company. And if it is, if it falls even within the striking distance of what could be a good company, you go off and fund it. Um, which is why they seem to think that, you know, YC might not fund all the best companies in the world, but YC rejected companies don't usually go off to become unicorns. In fact, I don't really think that has, I mean, I remember reading somewhere them saying that that hasn't really happened. To me, Tiger is a similar strategy. They're not testing to figure out which one of these companies is the next stripe. They're testing to figure out which one of these probably will not fall over and die in the next sort of two years. And as long as they pass that bar, they're willing to take a bet on saying one of these things will eventually become great. In which case, you know, whether you overpay for some by 20%, 25% here or there, it doesn't really matter. Okay. Um, you basically mean that they're trying to pick the right sample. Sort of like the, the Joel Greenblatt strategy of saying, uh, I need my EBIT to I, I need my EBIT to EV this much and my uh, return on capital this much. And I'm pretty sure in this sample, my expected return is going to be Y percent. Precisely. I think the I mean the difference that we are discussing here is there just because a strategy is quantitative doesn't mean that you need oodles of data to be able to kind of go after it. Maybe a better way to describe it might be systematic as opposed to quantitative. But I mean, obviously they're related, you know? I think Joel Greenblatt looks at, he looks at life from a value investment point of view, which again, it works ridiculously well, depending on the time frame that you're actually looking at, <laughs> or it did work ridiculously well, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, if nothing else, he had 25% of uh, Michael Burry's fund. <laughs> right, I mean, worked, worked till 2008. But- Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, you could have retired, then put all your money in treasury bills and done amazingly well in your entire life. But I don't think the personality type who would uh, make that strategy would be able to do that. Uh, my last question for you is, what did creating so, art with AI teach you? Ah, um, so this is <laughs> this was one of my first forays into getting back into coding. So during the pandemic or maybe even slightly before that i had this i mean i've been looking at ai companies for a while two of the companies i'm on the board of are ai companies i look at them from an investment point of view very regularly mm -hmm. and you know 
as a as a VC, because you see many companies, you have this feeling that you kind of know what they're doing, right? Just because like that's what exposure tells you that you kind of know what they're talking about. But actually, you don't usually know all that much about what they're actually talking about, <laughs> which is a, it's an unfortunate side effect um, of being in venture capital for a period of time. So I said, like, look, I mean, I kind of I can code. I'm not a great coder, but I can. Uh, I worked on AI like a long while ago. There's no reason nowadays that I shouldn't be able to get back into it and actually um, try and teach myself some of the rudimentary stuff. And something that I wish I had the aptitude for, but I don't, is painting. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to teach an AI how to paint for me because that could be fun. Um, that's how I kind of started playing around with it. What did it teach me? I guess, number one, it, it demystifies the nuts and bolts behind AI, right? I mean, the sheer level of, I don't know, call it fine tuning, call it playing around that you need to do in order to generate something interesting and meaningful is, it's crazy. I mean, the, the number of ways in which you can stop making AI work is, <laughs> is, is astronomical. So it gives you a unique, it gives you um, an insight into the fragility that is hidden underneath the system. Like it takes a lot of effort and a lot of work to actually get anything done. And it's useful to kind of get into the nuts and bolts of that and figure out, you know, what or how far away we are from anything resembling an AI that is slightly more anti-fragile. Um, number two, it gave me like a pretty solid appreciation of the fact that I think a large percentage of things that we um, enjoy is now something that we can actually create. So I did this with um, with art, but I also did this with text, for example, like you know, to create uh, new text in the style of PG Woodhouse or uh, try to create, yeah, teach an AI to sort of write new stuff, etc. Um, these are uh, obviously nowadays these are pay limitations, perhaps, of what a GPT three would be able to do. Right. But I think it was it was useful to see like, you know, firsthand on an iterative basis, how um, a brute force, um, brute force method of learning, which is kind of what a lot of the AI comes down to, is able to replicate to a large extent what um, humans do. I, I like to see that gap narrowing. I still feel like there's an uncanny valley that is not going to be able to, that we won't be able to bridge by brute force. But it's definitely interesting to see, you know, how awesome it is to be able to kind of um, produce something, right? And I think lastly, like just from a personal point of view, it made me feel like I can actually paint something and create something. And that's, that's very incredible because um, normally, you know, you know, I could go and learn how to paint if I take in a class, things like that. And my, um, from, from experience, my ability to uh, <laughs> actually gain any meaningful momentum in that progress is pretty low. I do not have the uh, patience or um, the dexterity to be able to create something great. But uh, with, my, with my friendly AI at my side, I feel like I can actually create something super cool. And that's, that's been amazing. <laughs> More people should try it is my, uh, is my thesis. I, I feel like it'll give them a better appreciation of both the uh, joys of AI and maybe teach them to not be so scared that 
we are all going to get turned into paper clips no i'm just i the only thing i took away from this is that i finally have a way to get back at the at the art teachers who called me useless so i'm 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 very happy about that 100% i think you know it's funny like i used to think look at um a digital art when you had to actually draw it with a stylus right and a lot of the lot of the art that was created you know across these forums etc cetera, etc cetera, are so amazing that you know you compare that with art that theoretically is far superior you know from the renaissance times etc cetera, etc cetera, and they easily hold up in mm-hmm. in realism in you know visual imagery in evoking a sense of wonder or what have you they easily hold up and now i guess we are getting to a point where you don't even need that individual necessarily to be able to create it so um i mean it's bad news i suppose if you're making your life uh, creating art in some ways but i have i'm reasonably confident that considering the number of knobs and dials that actually need to be twisted in order to create something meaningful even with ai um there's going to be a lot more people who can you know where those gloves like minority report and actually move dials back and forth to actually create something interesting <laughs> and meaningful that's going to be my uh, guess of one of the new types of jobs that's going to come up you know 20 years down the line okay it was a, it was an amazing conversation we i really like talking to you mostly because you went to so many topics so quickly so i was I was, uh, I, my, goal, my goal was to be one step ahead of you while asking questions. I think I did that. <laughs> no, this is awesome. It's always good to have a great conversation. Like I said, that's one of the metrics by which I will judge whether or not uh, my writing has been successful. So I can safely say that it has been. Thank you. I mean, this is the first time I've become the parameter for somebody else's success. So... Um, <laughs> when this- <laughs> <laughs> when this when this when this goes out um, in september i think uh, I, i i'm pretty sure everybody will love to hear this thank you sir thank you for uh, inviting me yep